But yes, our, 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 our trip was fun in a lot of ways. I wanted to do, now people have asked us, well, do you have a good trip? Well, well no, we, we gave away our, our daughter. We didn't have a good trip at all. But uh, in, in other hands, you know, it, it was, a, was a wonderful family time. And, and I wanted to just take a few minutes and just share with all of us as family together some of the things from that. Let's go ahead and bring the lights back down so you can see these pictures. Sometimes the screen's not bright, so I just want to go ahead and bring... Yeah, there we go. Now we can see them a little better. There's Ruth and Kuda. And uh, that's not the pastor who did the wedding ceremony actually behind there. That's the wedding officer. You see, in Zimbabwe, you can't just, just have, a, have a wedding ceremony with a pastor. You also have to have an official who's been certified by the government who knows the marriage law well enough, because apparently it's especially tricky. But uh, So he can actually do the official pronouncement and... Uh, so I won't go into much more than that, but uh, let's see. And then up on the, uh, no, 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 good, no, no, let's stay here, same, same one. I'm not sure what's happening, why, hmm. I have no idea why any of that's happening. But uh, one of the things along with, uh, along with family, if we can go back to the previous picture, I don't know if we can, it may not be possible. You can't go there from here. See? There we are. So, so it's also about family. Yeah, that may happen every time we put a new slide up. I'm not sure why. But um, I, I, I was assembling these pictures together this morning, and it's not really morning. It's really tonight. And my brain is really not working at all. And some of you bumped into me uh, at some point in the morning, and it wasn't a pleasant experience. And I apologize for that. I probably should have stayed away from church today. But that's family. That, that too is family. So there is, uh, there is Ruth with her brother and sister. Her older brother wasn't able to make it. And of course, her husband, their new brother, Kuda. And uh, there, is, there is Kuda's mom on the uh, right-hand side and Ruth's mom on the left. So a picture with moms. And I just threw in a couple of the family pictures. We haven't got the official photographer's pictures yet. So these are just my amateur efforts. Okay, next page. There uh, and uh, one thing about wedding is you join families together and uh, you also keep saving files. And so there's Ruth and Kuda, and this is some of Kuda's extended family. Uncle Victor is there, and there's Simba, and and of course there is this cute little girl, darling little girl that uh, wove her way into our hearts. And we had a couple of big family dinners together while we were there, and uh, the, some of the highlights of that in. The, in the next slide, we met um, Uncle, Uncle Kenny. Uncle Kenny starts his barbecue with a blowtorch. <laughs> Uncle Kenny is an interesting character. And if that's not good enough to, to start your barbecue with a blowtorch, man, you're learning something here. He then has this blower that he, he moves the coals along with. So we cooked more meat on that thing than I have ever seen at one barbecue before in my life. It's called a braai there, but I've never seen that much meat before. You can see we went through two, two, two bags of briquettes, and with the blowtorch and the, and the blower, that didn't take very long to go through those two bags. Moving along, next picture. After, after our time in Africa, after the wedding, we went away um, with family together for a few days after the wedding also, and, and so just had, had a real nice time together. And of course, part of that nice time was actually spending a little more relaxed time with some of the extended family that we just, uh, we met before, but feel like we know a little bit better at this point. But then we also uh, stopped and visited more family, as I told the kids, in Vienna. On the way back, we had planned, and uh, the missions team encouraged us to do this, to stop and visit the Ragsdales. They're new missionaries to, to our church, but they have been with Radio in Africa for about 18 years, and so Julie and I knew them there. And uh, so we got to visit them. They were in a coffee shop in, 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 in downtown Vienna, and uh, then we just were out wandering the streets, and the one shows um, 
Um, there's John and Carol and Julie, and then on back a little bit is Jean-Marc and his sister Nicole. And Jean-Marc embarrassed us all over town with this uh, a blue bulls beanie, it's called. It's a, we, first it said bulls on the top. I thought it was Chicago bulls. I didn't know why it was blue, and I'd never seen a hat with horns like that before. But it's for the Pretoria Blue Bulls. It's a rugby team, I think. You know nothing about it, except that it looks remarkably silly, and we had to walk all over downtown with him wearing the stupid thing. <laughs> Um, in South Africa, it would have been cool. In Vienna, it was just weird. But that's the way teens are. And yet in family, you put up with that, don't you? So there we are again. The family theme continues. One, I think there's one last slide of family. One of the things we did, the probably the most um, well-known site in downtown Vienna in the city proper is St. Stephen's Cathedral. The, the, the church is magnificent. It's huge. It took uh, generations to build. I don't have all the details of that, but, but we had seen it before. But this time we did something we hadn't done before. And something that, that spoke something to me about church and how church ought to be, we climbed up. You see, there was one tower. There was actually supposed to be two, but it never got finished. The second one wasn't built. They ran out of money or something. So they have one tower, and the tower has 343 steps. Yes, we did. And from the top, after 343 steps, you have a fantastic view of the entire city. Now, you could see much farther if it was clear. It was, it was a little cloudy. It was wintry. And, uh, but you did get a nice view of the rooftops where the snow was still on the rooftops from the last snowfall that they'd had in the city. And it was just beautiful. And what it reminded me of is, is hopefully... Churches provide something about a clarity of view and perspective. You get a different angle on how life is and the nuts and bolts of the day-to-day rubbing elders with, elbows with people in, on the streets. Maybe you get a little higher perspective of that from church as we did from this church, but maybe from our church as well. For instance, what is church? And so from St. Stephen's Church, I wanted to pose the question, what is church really? What is it supposed to be? What is it supposed to be about? We're starting a new year. We're starting uh, uh, into a new year of ministry together. We will have contact and connections with people outside. We will be inviting others into this church and this church family. And if that's true, then what is it all about, really? What is it all for, really? Why are we here? Why do we do this? What is this about? What are we supposed to be as church? This is something we've talked about before, but I think it bears repeating. We can go ahead and bring the lights back up now out there in the auditorium. I think I left them off the stage, but that'll be okay. You can see me well enough. Um, We pose the question, what is church? That takes me to... um, well, let me go back. I, the, the, this question was first posed to me at a time when I was, when I was in graduate studies, and um, I was working with a guy from Uganda on a theological uh, education program that would be for pastors in Uganda. We, we, we were coming up with a way that we could provide theological, theological education. You see, I'm really, my mind's somewhere else, 10 hours away how to provide theological education to pastors in the midst of ministry without taking them out of their ministry for, for three or four years to do it and relocating them out of the countryside into the city. And so we, we're, as we're coming up with this model, though, one of the th- questions that we were asked to consider is, what is your metaphor 
for the local church. Because your image of a local church, if you're going to prepare leaders for the church, then you need to prepare how you prepare the leaders depends on what you mean by church. What is your concept of church? And what, is, what then is your controlling metaphor? Because those things that we value most highly, which are often somewhat abstract concepts, we understand them not by a dictionary definition, but by metaphors, by images. For instance, I, I, when we talk about marriage, an image pops into your mind. It might be a bride in that lovely white gown, as you saw just a moment ago. In fact, I sort of primed that pump a little bit, didn't I? You talk about peace, and there's an image that comes into your mind. And you could, you could define the word peace or the concept of peace as well, but first, there's an image. Faithfulness, family, trust. These values evoke images or metaphors within our mind. What do we mean by that? Then what is your metaphor for the church? Maybe it's architectural. Maybe you, see, you understand the church as a fortress, a safe place to defend from any evil from the outside coming in. Maybe you see the church as a lighthouse, Maybe you see the church as institutional. It's a Bible college, a place of learning. It's an organization. It's an army with structure and a mission, and we're advancing. Maybe you see it as a hospital or a clinic, a place where those who are wounded and injured can come and receive care and be healed. Maybe you see the church as relational or associational. You see the church as a a beach lifeguard club. This is a, a club, oftentimes on surfer beaches and such, or swimming beaches, before there's any official city-paid lifeguard, because it's a dangerous place. Well, those who use the beach, some of them form together an association, a life-saving club, they used to call them. And uh, they would actually be volunteer lifeguards, or there might be dues paid, and they'd pay the lifeguard something in this life-saving club. Maybe, maybe you see the church as a support group. Maybe a maybe a monastery where we will pull apart from the world and we will pursue spirituality together. What is your metaphor for the church? You see, it matters because you'll function within the church based on that image, based on that metaphor. What you assume church to be is how you will function within the church. And so what I want to do this morning, it's a good time, it's been a couple years, I want to readdress what is church. There are three metaphors that Paul gives in what I think is the center point in his his first letter to Timothy. He's writing the letter to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy a lot of things about church. The funny thing about 1 Timothy is he's telling Timothy, his son in the faith, he's telling Timothy things Timothy already knows. Timothy would have learned this from Paul. He would have known this from Paul all along the way. And yet he's telling it as if he's laying this out for the first time. Paul is writing to Timothy but he wants to be overheard. He intends this letter to be shared and read by elders, other leaders in the church as well. And as you read the letter carefully, you find that actually there were problems in the church, and some of those problems were because of leaders going different directions and pulling this way or that way instead of moving together in a shared vision and purpose. And so Paul, at the center of the letter, gives a shared vision of what is this church. And he's not talking about church universal here, as he does in the book of Ephesians. He's talking about a local church in a particular context. 
So a local church in a particular context, in a particular town or neighborhood like ours, he says a, a, a church is this. He uses three images or three metaphors to give what I think is a nutshell description of the local church. Now, what do I mean by that? A nutshell, a compact description. A, there's a lot packed in there, and when you open it up, you begin to find, well, there's more in there than you realize, and you have to unpack it and define it a little bit. But it's a nutshell, compact description. For instance, there's a nutshell description of the gospel Paul gives when he says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and how that he rose again on the third day, and he was seen. So the, the gospel is that Jesus died for us, for our sins, and was buried, and that he rose again and he was seen. It was a literal, real death, and it was a literal, real resurrection. He died for our sins, and because he rose again from the dead, those sins have been removed, put away, they're done. That's the gospel. There's a lot to unpack from those two verses in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a lot more to add into that, but that's a nutshell description of the gospel. Let me give you another one. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel. Everybody agree? But that needs unpacking. In fact, that gospel, that gospel John 3.16, stands on an image of just as Moses lifted up that bronze serpent in the wilderness. And now there's a whole story and history behind that bronze serpent in the wilderness in the book of Numbers that John 3.16 stands on. You've got the gospel in John 3.16. You need to unpack it now a little bit more to really get more of the breadth and depth of it. But it's there. Okay. So then... If you'll, if you'll buy into that, that there's a nutshell description that can then be unpacked, what is Paul's definition, his nutshell description of the church? I find it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 14. In the midst of writing these things, he just finished the section about church leaders, and he says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delayed, if I'm not able to come to you right away, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, and not merely to behave in the terms of being on your best behavior. This is how do you conduct yourselves? How do you carry out life? How do you do church together? I write these things so you know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, or a pillar and support of the truth. And then he goes on to expand that truth in verse 16, the confession of godliness that Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That is our Jesus. It's, that's just not my text this morning, but it's a wonderful text. I wish it was. My text this morning is that first phrase, household of God. What does that mean? See, Paul gives three images, three metaphors for church. Household of God, the church of the living God, and the church of a living God, the word church, ecclesia, where we get our word church, um, is, means a unique, special assembly. An assembly, a group of people with special privilege, a called out from the whole people assembly of the living God as opposed to all the other gods that were out there. That's as much as I'll say about that, because that's next week. 
and then a pillar in support of the truth, upholds and proclaims God's truth. This first word, household, is a word which means family. Think about the house of David or the household of Onesiphorus, or an elder needs to be able to rule over his own household, his own family, if he's going to lead in the church. A household or family. Now that word house or household is, is sometimes understood as house instead, and you think, well, maybe he means building. I'm not going to spend much time on that this morning. If you use a King James Version or New King James, it translates the, into the English word house instead of household. And Paul sometimes uses um, architectural building metaphors for the church. He calls it his temple. When, and, and he might refer to it as God's house in the sense of a temple, but every time he does, he uses a different Greek word, which means Naos, well, the Greek word is naos, it means temple, specifically. This word means house and a building or household, the people, the family that live together in the building, in the house. As I said, think house of David. When you think house of David, don't think the building David lived in. Think of the family, the extended family, the descendants of David. That's the house of David, the family of David. And you are the household. As a church, you are the household or the family of God. So the church is the household of God. The church, it is the church of the living God. It is a pillar and support of the truth. That could be said this way. And I have a slide that basically gives these points. A local church is to be a genuine community distinctive from the culture which faithfully proclaims and preserves God's truth. Did you get that? A genuine community, a genuine familial Family community related together. A genuine community. Think about genuine community in the best sense of community. Okay, where we have actual communion or sharing together. We have community, we have interaction, we have relationship that's real and authentic. Genuine community that is distinctive from the surrounding culture that faithfully proclaims and preserves God's truth. That's church. Those are the three in a nutshell, and I want to just talk a little bit more today about family. We started with family. I showed you pictures of my family. I showed you pictures of my growing family. We have more family now in Africa that we're actually related to. The marriage officer said so. We are actually related to these people now. The Uncle Victor is part of my family, and he's He's younger than me, but I think I'm supposed to call him Uncle Victor because everybody else did. And Uncle Kenny and his blowtorch, they're all part of my family now, whether they're weird or not. Along with that, there's a spiritual family that we're a part of. That was our visit to the Ragsdales. And John Mark and his blue bull's horn beanie cap, as weird as that is, as odd as he is, that's family together. And we are family, and we love and care for one another as family. That God has made us to be family. This, this is critical how Paul describes the church. I don't think I can overstate, I don't think I can, I can make too much of the point, because Paul's family language is all through his letters. It's not incidental that he talks about brethren. Now, brethren means brothers and sisters. It doesn't just mean the guys, Okay. That Greek word encompasses both together. It means relatives in a broad sense, family relatives. Um, when Paul talks about his brethren according to the flesh, meaning the, the whole nation of Israel, he means all of the people, not just the men. Brethren is an inclusive word. 
He talks about brothers and sisters. He's not just using that term lightly, that we are related as God's family. Uh, he talks about his parental care of the church, of, of the church of Thessalonians. He talks about as a loving, mo- as a loving mother nurturing her children, as a, as a faithful father would exhort and encourage and also challenge his sons and his daughters. So we care for one another in those kinds of terms. Older men are to be treated as fathers, Paul said. Younger men as brothers. And he, he refers to, some, uh, to a lady in the church as, as his own mother, although she wasn't. She was somebody else's mother. But, and mine, he says. He refers to Timothy as his own true son in the faith. Much of what we understand about church uses this family language. And if that's what it says, we need to live there. We cannot be what a church is supposed to be if we don't grab hold of this sense as family, even to the extent that it somewhat overextends and begins to push a little bit at your, your um, earthly, or shall I say, our natural family relationships. That it begins to intrude, it begins to crowd in there, and it begins to demand time and energy and attention that you normally reserve for your, quote, real family. Because guess what? You have, like I have, a new and larger real family. This is family that we will, we will care for and be part of for all of eternity. It's been said once to, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with the saints we know, now that's another story. <laughs> but that's family, isn't it? That's, that, that too is how family functions Philip Towner put it this way, the effect of Paul's household imagery is to depict, depict, depict the people of God as God's household, a living and growing family whose life together requires mutuality of service and care, a recognition of responsibilities, and a sense of identity, of belonging and protection. We belong to something. We belong together. First of all, that mutuality of service and care. Family is for family, not for the individual. The, the purpose of family is not merely to provide for one individual, for that individual to, to succeed and grow and prosper. The purpose of family is for family. There's a mutuality of service and care. And in the Greco-Roman family of the day, in the Greek world that Paul was writing into, it was a patriarchal family, certainly. It was a family of the older patriarch, of younger strong men, of younger who still who, who were emerging leaders in the family, of older kids and younger kids and even babies. There were all generations in the family. And they all had different roles and responsibility. Think about it. The, the, the aging patriarch of the family, the grandfather, maybe even the great-grandfather, did not do much of the hard work burden carry. But he still kept and he cast and he preserved the values and the purpose and the vision for the family and where, what it must be and where it must go. 
And he could see from a longer perspective of ways that how, how this family would move into the next generations from where they had come from. So his leadership was critical. The, uh, the value in, in previous times of seniors within the family structure and how their view on things mattered most. And that's changed somewhat, hasn't it? And that's because, you know why that changed? Basically, because of technology. Technology changed so in the workplace and in other places, a younger generation suddenly understood things that were going on and how to use the newest tools, which gave such rapid access. And a younger generation, so there was a, there was a generation that it was, it was kind of their turn to lead, and all of a sudden the boomers came up behind them and grabbed everything and took it from them because they understood. They were younger. They had hands on this newer technology and the opportunities that it gave. And yet, technology hasn't changed the basic aspects of human relationship. It's another distraction. It's a complication, certainly. It provides new opportunities and threats, but it doesn't change the basic, the basic issues of relationship. And so if we, if we laid that aside, we wouldn't have also laid aside instead the, the value and the perspective of an older generation that has seen so much and so then sees a lot of things more clearly than those of us that are younger. So one of the things in this family structure was an honoring of, of those who were older. But there were different tasks and everybody had a role to play. Um, let's, let's just break it down a little bit into your family life. Maybe mom or dad cooks. Some, some, some families, dad cooks. and our family, dad doesn't cook much at all. If you can cook it on the grill, then you can call me. Other than that, if it's more complicated than meat on a fire, then Julie's going to have to be involved. But um, along the way, you're going to want the kids to cook, right? Along the way, maybe mom does the laundry, but along the way, the kids need to do the laundry. Certainly by the time they're teens, they need to learn to do the laundry. But be careful how that starts, or else instead of bright whites and clean colors, you're going to have a dull gray, right? The laundry won't look like it used to look. What's wrong here? When I was a child, I contributed things to the laundry, and it... it, it it made interesting new colors on some of my sister's garments that they did not appreciate. So obviously, who does what in the family? There's, a, there's, there's the right time, but each one does something. And children at a young age ought to learn something about participation in family life, right? I had chores when I was little. It may have been simple. It may have been wiping the table and wiping the chairs because we had children at the table. And with those children at the table and they spilled food on the table, it was always on the chairs as well. So you wipe the table, you wipe the chairs. You probably had to clean the floor, but mom must have took care of that because my responsibilities were limited. The table and the chairs. Later on, I graduated to washing dishes. I wished I could have stayed at table and chairs. But... <laughs> That there's a different level for each one. Sooner along, I, 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 I moved on in life, and at one point I came, became responsible not merely for washing the dishes, but for buying the dishes or the dishwasher. You see, our roles change in family life. But the essentiality of having a role, and it's not a good thing in family when some of us don't have a role, Right? It's not, a good, it's not merely that it's not good for family, it's not good for someone. 
to think that the family revolves around them to the point that they sit over there and everybody, the whole family works then and presses toward their beck and call to serve them and to, to care for them. That happens for babies. Babies are terribly selfish. Have you noticed that? And they really don't contribute much of anything and yet they demand everything and a whole lot of energy and, they, and, and, and you're tired out and then they wake you up in the middle of the night. Babies are a mess and yet we keep doing it. And the family keeps growing. Ryan talked about that. Why is it? It's a great question. Why would you accept love? And love in a relationship that is so rich and deep that you want to share, you want to grow. And that's why we have babies in the church as well. That's why we grow in this family of God. That's why we want to see others who are born again into God's family because there's a relationship here with ourselves and with our God and our Savior that is so wonderful and special that we want to share that with others. It's been said that everybody in your church knows why your church is not growing. Everybody, because the reason that your church is not growing is the reason that all those people, you folks sitting out there, are not inviting somebody. Because when you are excited about the life of the church, and not merely as a church organization, but who we are as family together, God's family, in relationship with him, and because of him with one another, that we want to invite other people into that. We want that to grow and to share with others. We want others, to, not because their being here will make us feel better about us, but because we've got something here that other people want, uh, need to have, and we desperately want to, urgently want to share it with them. That's when a church grows. When we are so captured by the vision of who our God and Savior is for us that we want to share, we must share that with others. That's when a church grows. We can't help but invite others into it. There's mutual care and service that varies uh, from one to another. There's a recognition of responsibility, individual family roles and, roles and chores. I've started to talk some about that. Um, church is a family business. You know, I, um, I, I, there's an airplane conversation that I've, I've, I've tried to have at some points on, on trips when I'm traveling, especially when I'm traveling alone. This time around, we, we had, when there was three of us traveling together, Julie, Daniel, and I, and we get a set of three seats, and there we were in our three seats, and we're kind of our own little section of the plane, right? And so, and then when it got down to Daniel was heading back and we were traveling on to Europe ourselves and there was just a section of two seats. And I'd planned it that way. I thought it would be, would be good, just Julie and I together. And yet uh, what it did is it, is it kept us from interacting with anybody else. And I was reminded only afterwards of this conversation that I'd, I'd, I'd kind of tried to model before or tried to follow after before as somebody else described what he did when he traveled on planes. He would sit down. He traveled by himself. He'd sit down next to somebody. And often if it was, if it was somebody else traveling on business like he was, they talk about, well, what do you do? Well, what do you do? And they start comparing, you know, and start to say, well, who's, who's, who's bigger, who's greater, who's more important, who's got the most fantastic job or company or whatever, right? You start ranking and comparing one another. Well, you know, I let the other guy go first and tell how wonderful his situation and, and his position and all of this. And well, what do you do? Oh, man, I, have, I, am, I am part of a great organization. Yeah? Yeah, yeah we, are, we are all over the world. 
We, have, we, we, we are into, into life transformation and human development on a scale that nobody else is able to do. Why, we've got hospitals, we have got schools, we have got colleges. We, we, we are in every country in the world. You talk about Coca-Cola, we were there before Coca-Cola was there. We are in places where Coca-Cola hasn't even been heard of. And we're going to be there after Coca-Cola is long gone. Who are you? Well, it's this thing called the church. And you and I are in, I don't know what his day job was, but that's how he saw himself. He saw himself as a representative of this thing that God was doing in the midst of the world, all over the world, that was bigger than anything else going on. It's a great way to have an airplane conversation about, well, what is it that you do? And to, to launch that from corporate terms into a sharing of the gospel. What we're really all about is this. The founder of our organization, he said this, and off you go into the gospel. And I didn't do it at all. We just sat there, Daniel, three, Daniel and Julie, the three of us, Julie and I, the two of us, and we just slept and watched movies and stupid things like that. But, but I encourage you, get a glimpse of church, of this church and God's church that is compelling, that you want to invite others into. We are in a family business. God has given us, he has brought us into this thing that gives us a whole new sense of identity, belonging, and protection. You know, family is not what it's supposed to be today. One of the problems with this metaphor today is people have experienced family in very unhealthy ways, haven't they? Perhaps you have. I know I have. My family wasn't always a happy place. It certainly wasn't always a safe place from my perspective. Uh, parents meant well in trying to control situations, trying to control me, trying to prevent by putting up boundaries. And yet if I crossed those boundaries, it was going to be uh, harsh. Probably in ways that, that we would agree if I described in detail were not healthy, were not good. There were times when I was afraid to come home from school. I didn't want to go home. It wasn't a safe place. And some of you can experience that. And it was because there was some expectation that was even a right and valid expectation and I had not lived up to it. And yet, now I'm afraid to go home. There ought to be, when we've gone our own way and insisted on our own way, uh, other than our Father's way, there ought to be some fear and trepidation in approaching into His presence. And yet at the same time, if church is anything, it is not a place where we measure up to standards. Church as God's family is a place that more than anything else, as Paul defines church, as Paul expands church through this whole letter, elsewhere through the book, it's a, it's a place of mercy and forgiveness and love. And I've seen that work in family as well. I've seen that work where somebody has blown it I've seen it in our own family. I've seen it in church family. And yeah, there's, there, there's going to be some consequences. There's going to be some work in putting this thing back together. And yet, to know that we're in this together. We're going to walk through this together. We're going to embrace mercy and forgiveness and love and care. And from here, we're going to build up rather than shoot our own wounded. That's what this church needs to be. And I don't say that from a point of fault that it's not. I say that from, really, I think, from a point of strength. 
We are that kind of church family, and I exhort you to continue to press on and to, uh, how is it that when I come to church, who needs strengthening? Who needs encouragement? Who has arrived here this morning thinking, I have so blown it this week that, that God really can't bring me into his fellowship. I've gone too far. I've ruined it. God really doesn't want to have relationship with me. It might be true, but it's not true for me anymore. There are some that have, are, have, have come to church this morning and felt, if you really knew where I was, if you really knew what went on inside my heart, you wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. And maybe we wouldn't want that for that individual, certainly, but we, we can't not be their friend. Why? Because you don't get to choose family. You are placed within and among. And we do love family. You've got some weird family, don't you? And yet you love them. You love them anyway because they're family. Sometimes you even have to draw some lines in terms of relationship for, for proper boundaries, because, but still, they're family. And we're going to strengthen one another. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to build up one another. We're going to hold each other accountable as family because that's what's good for one another. But we're going to love We're going to extend mercy and grace. We're going to forgive. We're going to strengthen. There's a sense of identity and belonging that we are not just any family. We are God's family, the household of God. Paul, Paul, I'm I'm going to abbreviate here, but but Paul, when he speaks uh, in Philippians about some of those who are coming to faith in Christ, he speaks of how the gospel has entered even into Caesar's own household. Now, Caesar's household was a fantastic family to be a part of. If you lived in the first century, if you could pick your family, a family of prestige, you'd want to be part of Caesar's family, Caesar's household. And Caesar's household did not only include his his relatives or his descendants. His household also included those whom he employed, his servants, those slaves that he owned. You might think being a slave is not a great thing. It's not a great thing unless you're a slave in Caesar's household. That held status. A slave in Caesar's household had higher standing in society than a free Roman citizen outside the door. Okay? Now, I don't know what you think about yourself. I don't know where where you think you stand in God's family. But if by faith in Christ you are in God's family, you have eternal standing. We are not just family together. That would be a social club. A sociological experiment. We are God's family through faith in Christ. And that is eternal standing. Who am I? Well, I'm the son of my mother, the son of my father. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the brother of three sisters. And, well, they're an interesting lot myself. I could tell you stories, but I won't. I think this is being taped. But, but we are not just our family. We are not just a family. Folks, we are God's family. You are in the family of the true and the living God. I should close by asking a couple of questions, especially around that point. Are you really? Are you really part of the family or do you merely come for community? Some of you parents, when you have teens... The family seems to grow, especially around dinner time, right? 
Or when you have teens or teen boys, almost every time is dinner time. And there's always, there's always more gathered around the, around the refrigerator than you remember having in your family. There are these others that just hang around and hang on. And, and part of that might be that their own family situation is not so great and they're seeing something different in your family and you want to be, they want to be part of your family in a sense relationally rather than their own and you're glad for that. You're just not sure if you can afford it. But they can be with your family. They can eat with your family. They can hang out and watch movies, and yet they're not in your family. And the same is true of church. You may be here. You may enjoy the connection. You may enjoy the community relationship, the friendship, and the welcome, and and people that you're getting to know, and yet, have you ever actually become part of this family? And I don't mean membership. Membership is a declaration of commitment. Yes, I am in agreement with and committed to this church as family. You formalize that locally, but you become part of God's family through birth, the new birth. This is a family that welcomes. This is a family that will embrace. This is a family that invites others in, but the way in is through. As Jesus said, you must be born again. As you're born into one family, you're born into this family. So maybe you're here, maybe you're hanging around, but have you actually entered into the family through believing in Jesus Christ? He is the way. He is the door in. No one comes into God's family yet except by Jesus Christ. Now you can be part of the family, and yet at a distance. This is the other side of family. This is, another, this is another dysfunctional aspect of family. You are part of the family. You actually belong to the family, and yet you're at a distance as if you weren't. This again, let me, let me, uh, let me illustrate. This is the middle school kid who says, Dad, could you drop me off two blocks before we get to school? Why? Because I don't want my friends or the kids at school to identify me with you. I've created this other identity or I want them to know me as me and as I present merely and the way that I present myself does not include your scrappy old car. Huh. Well, how about the the teen that doesn't want to go to family outings anymore? They are so lame. Would rather eat in his room instead of at the family table but wants the room and wants the food. You can't become family simply by plugging in, but you do live as family by joining in. You can't experience family, and you cannot experience and live in that identity and care and protection at the same time as you withdraw to assume and to live in your own identity. What I'm exhorting here is be part of family. Find ways to connect in. I love our church family gathering together as whole church worship, and yet you have got to connect into smaller connection groups where you can be known and know others in the family. If you don't know others and know more about their lives and what's going on in their lives, what's going on spiritually in their lives, and that they also know you in your life and your context and what's going on in your life and what's going on spiritual. What are the things that challenge you? What are the things you fear? What are the temptations you're liable to give into? If you don't have others around you that know those things, how can they strengthen you? 
How can they help you to, to grow into that next stage of family life, wherever it is from where you're at right now? I mentioned the grief share group earlier because that's another stage of life in family life. Processing loss. And that also we do better when we do it together with others rather than muddling through on our own. And every aspect of transitions and stages and growth in family life is like that. The teen years when teens want to withdraw a little bit. Why? Because they're pursuing their own identity. That they're more than just their parents' kids. Yes. And yet when in, in, the, in, in the church family... Don't leave the family behind while you pursue your own identity, whatever you might think it is, because these are folks that have also done the same thing ahead of you and can help you walk that road. We need one another. First of all, then, there's family institutions, there's family traditions, there is church membership, there is baptism, the way that I do declare and participate and be part of that, part of this church family, part of any church family. What's the next step for you? It might be, I need to join in. I need to find that connection. It might be Pastor Bob's group on Monday mornings. That doesn't work for me. It may be the youth group on Wednesday nights. It may be a ladies group, a men's group on, on, on Wednesdays as we look at disciples making disciples. What is that? Building into one another's lives. Yeah, exactly. What will be the next step of getting involved in family? And involved in family like these kids sneaking back into church now. Being involved in family, that's where we figure out together this thing called grace. You know, I I figure that out together. I experience it more deeply when it's bridged across people who are less like me. When it's all wrapped around me and people who are a lot like me, less grace is needed because I think I'm fine. But when I start bumping into others with needs and others who are different and uh, others who see things in me that I don't necessarily want known, that's when grace manifests. That's when mercy shows. That's when forgiveness is lived in. And I know one thing about all of us. That's what we desperately need. God has made us family. He's done this in his own son. And I hope that this year, I pray that this year, I'll I'll labor with you that this year is a year that all the more we live as family together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you have called us and created us as family. You have joined us not merely together, but you've made us part of your own family. And Father, I think that there are some here today that have been with the family but are not sure that they're part of the family. And right now, Lord, speaking to you, Father, I pray for them. Lord, they know within their own minds, perhaps, or thinking, wondering, am I really part of the family or am I just hanging out by the refrigerator or watching movies with everybody else? But do I really belong? Oh, Lord. I pray for that one in particular, that more than being welcome here, they would feel your invitation, that they might be born again by faith in Jesus. And Father, for all who are here who are part of your family, oh Lord, would you help us to live together as family, to care for one another, to look beyond ourselves, and to realize that this family is not about me, this family is about us and about our Father and our God who has created us and called us 
Oh, Lord, that we might be a family that represents you well, that shows off your glory to the world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. As our ushers come forward to, to receive the offering, we're going to close the service this morning with the song that we sang earlier. This is Amazing Grace. This is Amazing Grace. This is the, the, the God who breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty. Lord, receive uh, these gifts and offerings, Lord, from us, from hearts overflowing with gratitude for what you have so faithfully provided. We give back to you, Lord. Use them for your kingdom, for your family, that the word of Christ, the power of his saving grace and mercy, this amazing grace, would be spread all over this community, all over this country, around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.